let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning and then um, the, the preaching of God's word. Our reading this morning comes from Philippians 3, 12 through 21. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained." Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is God's word. It's true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Kelly. Well, just to echo that, it is so great to be here worshiping with you guys this morning and the newcomers lunch right after church. We would love to see you. We were just meeting in the library just down the hallway. Um, and I also want to tag back on that, uh, that gospel book that we have up here for free in the DC leader training. The reason it's an open invite, you don't have to be a current DC leader in order to come to this is because we want our small groups, our discipleship collectives to be small, intimate groups of three to six people in the single, single gender groups or three to six couples in the mixed group. And the reason we want smaller groups like that is the the goal of these is that they would be the hub of discipleship and care in our church. And so after everything that's gone on the last few years, I think the American church is more in need of soul care than we have ever been. And so we need those smaller, intimate groups in order to have that happen. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus, we believe God has equipped you with his Holy Spirit to make other disciples of Jesus. And so we want these trainings to be just a a simple way to pour some skills into you so that you can grab uh, another co-lead with you and another person. You can start your own DC and begin the work of discipleship. We're really excited about that and hope that uh, you are able to make it. Again, this first book that we're we're reading is fantastic. It it really gets to the heart of what we're praying our church uh, becomes more and more a reality in our lives, a gospel-centered, gospel culture church here that we can be pursuing together. So that's why that's such an important thing for us. So now we're going to get into uh, studying God's word. Um, As we get going, I was talking with some friends yesterday about uh, some unhelpful things to say in the middle of an argument. And one of the things that we realized is if you're in the middle of an argument and you tell someone, hey, just calm down. That doesn't typically go very well. And the four of us, we all agreed that that was a good reality. I think it's because we've probably all tried that in our marriages, telling our spouse, hey, just calm down. That never really seems to go very well when you're in the middle of an argument. But it got me thinking about other unhelpful phrases that we sometimes tell people. Like, so I've tried telling our kids, hey, stop crying when they're, when they're crying. And they're never like, but Father, you are so wise. I'm so glad that you asked me to stop crying. I, I will cease this moment. Exactly. I'm done crying. Um, other unhelpful phrases I think that we use sometimes, uh, when someone is going through a hard season or a difficult moment, a lot of times we tell them, hey, it's going to be okay, right? We just throw that phrase out there. It's going to be okay. And I think we can assume the best and it's someone's motivation when they say that. It's, it's a desire to bring comfort and assurance. But if you're going through a hard season and someone tells you it's going to be okay, the first thing you always do is shake your head and say, what makes you think that? 
Right? And, and the reason we doubt the person who tells us that it's going to be okay is because we wonder if, are they actually close enough to what's going on? Have they experienced what I'm going through? How would they know it's going to be okay? And another reason we doubt when they tell us that is because we, we say, like, are, are you in a position to fix this problem? Do, are, do you have the power to make this right? If not, how can you tell me it's going to be okay? Or other times we think, you know, are, are you really invested in my success? Do you really believe that, like, somehow the outcome of this situation for me that you actually care about? Like, is, is, how could you say it's going to be okay? Okay, but the reason we gather here as a church every Sunday morning is because as followers of Christ, we believe that Jesus, in his sovereign love, can look at us with love and compassion and power and say, it's going to be okay, right? He, he is close enough to us to know all the things that we're experiencing. He, he is powerful enough to actually do something with the pain that we're going through, and he is invested in our future enough that he was willing to die in our place on the cross, and so when Jesus looks at us and says, it's going to be okay, those words mean something completely different than when someone else says them. And so this morning what we're going to do is spend about 30 minutes talking about what does it mean when Jesus says it's going to be okay? Like, do we actually believe that Jesus could look at us and say, it's going to be okay no matter what it is we're going through? And the reason why we're getting all this out here this morning is because every single week I am prone to forget that Jesus is with me, that Jesus is for me, and that Jesus is over me. And I need to be reminded all of those things are true because Jesus is a wonderful Savior. So I'm going to say a word of prayer and then we're going to get into studying God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word for us. I thank you how when we open these pages, it's not just words printed uh, on some white paper, but rather it is the very words of life that our souls need to hear. And so I pray that as we study this passage, that, that your spirit would be the one to apply it to our hearts, uh, that our eyes would be open to see a clearer picture of who you are and all of your beauty and your majesty. And I pray that each of us would leave here this morning more in love with you than when we came. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Man, so we're uh, continuing our series through the book of Acts. We're going to be wrapping up here uh, at the end of November is when we will finish this. We've been in it for almost a year now, uh, or a little bit, actually a little bit over a year. And so we're in Acts chapter 22, and we're going to do all of Acts chapter 23. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 22, verse 30. And if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the table. I forgot to check the page number, but it, we're going to read a lot, some long chunks today. So it'll be really good to have the word out in front of you as we get going. So here, here's a little bit of context. If you haven't been with us through our study of the book of Acts, uh, Paul has made his way back to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul got into Jerusalem last week when we did our, our sermon there, uh, and he was um, immediately, uh, he was uh, about to be killed by a mob that was mad at him because they thought he had broken some of their rules regarding the temple, and the Roman soldiers came and actually rescued Paul from his own people from being beaten to death, and then Paul gave his testimony. He explained who Jesus is for him and what Jesus has done in his life. That made the Jewish people so angry. They tried to kill him again, and Paul had to be rescued again by the Roman soldiers. And now as we pick it up this week, the Roman centurion, the tribune, is trying to figure out what in the world is going on with this guy, Paul. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 22, verse 30. Uh, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason while he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that this was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. 
Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by then, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barrack. So, so this Roman soldier is, is trying to play the good investigator. He's trying to figure out what's going on. So he calls the Jewish leadership together and says, why are you trying to kill this guy? What is going on? So Paul stands there. He makes one statement. He says, uh, I feel like I've lived my life with a good conscience. And the leader of the Jewish people, the, the high priest, orders that Paul gets slapped across the mouth for disrespecting them. And so then Paul makes this really bold statement against the high priest. He then realizes that there's two different factions going on, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He kind of throws a hand grenade into the middle of their theological debate. Dissension raises again. They try to kill him again and again for the third time in two days. Paul is rescued from the Jewish people by the Roman soldiers. So in this passage, it's really a lot of interesting stuff is happening. There's three different conflicts that are going on. There's Paul against Ananias, the high priest. There's the Pharisees against the Sadducees. And there's the conflict of Paul against his own despair and discouragement, I think. And so let's take those three conflicts quickly here and see what we're seeing. So uh, Ananias, we know from uh, Josephus and some of the other ancient historians that he was the high priest at this time. He was actually a rather bad dude. Everyone agreed that he was not a man of God. He was not leading honorably. And he ended up being stabbed to death, assassinated by his own people in AD 66, about eight years after this. And so when this conflict comes up, uh, he orders Paul to be slapped and Paul responds with more vitriol and anger than we see him have at any point in the New Testament. And so it raises some questions like, why is Paul so, why is he responding so disrespectfully to this guy? And then is he lying when he says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that you were the high priest. And so people come up with some weird theories. They're like, maybe Paul was, uh, had bad eyesight and he couldn't see who Ananias was. Maybe he'd been gone too long. He didn't know who the high priest was. But, but I think what happened is Ananias, the high priest, ordered Paul to be slapped and Paul being human responded with anger. Like he, he got upset at being smacked across the face. I don't know if you guys have ever been slapped before. Um, I, when my brother was in a car accident once, and I was uh, there uh, to help him. My dad was out of town, and so I was, we were going to come up with a plan to tow the Jeep back to my parents' property. Uh, he didn't want the tow truck driver to take it. I told the tow truck driver, I don't think my parents want you to take their vehicle. We'll take care of it. And he got so mad that he was losing business, he slapped me across the face. And I responded very calmly, and I was like, hey, man, just relax. Like, calm down. <laughs> no, not really. I'm a huge sinner, and so I said a lot of very sinful things towards him. And I think that's what's happening here. Paul got smacked. He got offended, and so he lashes out against this guy, and then he offers an apology. But in his apology, he uses a little bit of sarcasm. He says, oh, I didn't know that you were the high priest. And he's being sarcastic, saying, oh, I didn't know that someone of your character some of your flaws could be the high priest of God's people, be leading his people. So that's, that's the conflict that comes up. Paul shows his humanity and his need for grace when he loses his temper. A second tension that arises is the Pharisees against the Sadducees. So he, Luke does a great job of explaining these two different political parties and their different theological debates, and we don't need to go into all of that. But the point is, Paul shows them their own division as a leadership council. And it's basically saying, are you guys really going to put me on trial when you guys can't even agree on this other stuff? He's showing how trivial some of their arguments are and how that really how unfit they are to place a ruling over him. 
And then the last conflict that we see is between Paul, I th- I, this is again, I'm, I'm in, reading into this a little bit. I think there's a conflict between Paul and his own despair. Because think about it, three times in two days, Paul has had to be saved by the Romans. The enemy of Israel has had to come to his rescue because of what his own people are doing to him as he's trying to share with them who Jesus is. I, I, I mean, I have never been worried for my life because someone was that angry at me. And for Paul to have that happen three times in two days, I think that would bring a very difficult season for him particularly. And so we see Paul's endurance through that despair by what happens next. Ver, look at verse 11. And this is why I think we can say Paul was rightly discouraged is because of how Jesus responds to his discouragement. He says, verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Okay, so if you have a Bible that has Jesus' words in red letters, this is one of those rare red-letter verses that's not in the Gospels. This is Jesus comes and stands by him in order to encourage Paul with what he's doing. I notice the way it says that it says he stood by him. This isn't a vision that Paul has. This isn't like an image he gets in his mind. The physical presence of Jesus manifests with him. And what the Greek word actually says is overshadowed him and said, take courage. Jesus showed his presence in such a powerful way that he, it's not, uh, like I said, a vision. It's more like when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament were in the fiery furnace and they looked into the furnace and they said, hey, we only threw three people in there, but there's actually four guys walking around and they're unharmed. And that fourth person is a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus. And we see the same kind of comforting presence that Jesus does here as he comes alongside Paul in order to tell him to take courage. And and I love how he says, uh, you must testify the facts about me in Rome. He doesn't say, give people this nice religious talk. Go tell them your theories on religiosity. He says, tell them the facts about who Jesus is. Our faith is not rooted in theory, but it's rooted in the fact of that Jesus really lived in our place. He really died in our place, and he really rose again from the dead. That's the gospel that Paul uh, testifies to. And then uh, as he tells them here to take courage, I think what's happening is it's this reminder that from this point on, Paul's future is completely secure. There is no doubt that Paul is is going to make it to Rome because Jesus says, you will do this. And when Jesus promises something, it's guaranteed to happen. But just because he's guaranteed to end up in Rome doesn't mean that there's not going to be a lot of difficulty along the way. I think a lot of times as Christians, we, we mix up those promises and we think that because God has guaranteed our outcome, that we will end up in heaven with him for eternity, that that should change the fact that there's going to be difficulty along our journey. And Paul is, is being strengthened for this journey, knowing that there will, in fact, be difficulty ahead. And that's why this phrase from Jesus is so important. He says, take courage. Take courage. It, it means to be confident, to take heart, to, don't, to not despair, don't give up. He's saying, take heart, like, Do not despair. It's going to be okay. Take courage. Be encouraged because I'm with you. And and so that that word occurs in the New Testament um, a bunch of times as a a description of what we should have. We should have courage. But it only occurs five times in the New Testament as an imperative. And an imperative means that it's a command. And all five times that this word appears as a command, as it does here, it comes from the mouth of Jesus. And the reason that's so important is because if I tell you, hey, it's going to be okay, All that is is my words coming to try to comfort you. But when Jesus speaks those words to you, he doesn't just say it as a way to say, there, there, it's going to be okay. He can say with authority, I command you to take courage, to be comforted, to have hope 
because it's Jesus who's the one who's telling us that. That's the kind of confidence we can have. And so because of that, we can, we can know that his commands mean something because this promise comes from the fact that Jesus is standing beside Paul, that he is with him. He is present with him in the middle of this trial. And so even though we, you might not have ever seen the presence of Jesus standing next to you, that same comforting presence is something that we can experience as Christians. In Hebrews 13, the author of Hebrews says, for Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, we all, whether or not you, you are like Paul and have experienced Jesus' physical presence, we all can say confidently. And that word confidence is the same word as courage that Jesus uses when he commands Paul to take courage. He says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The, you can take courage with you because the presence of Jesus is what we find our hope in. We can have courage from the presence of Jesus. And here's another interesting thing. This, is the, the, this scene happens, and for the next two and a half years, Paul is sustained through this journey as he spends the next two and a half years in prison, even though, he, as far as we know, he doesn't receive any f- subsequent visions or words from the Lord. It's this one moment that sustains him for two and a half years of hardship and trial and shipwreck and imprisonment imprisonment and beatings and all these things that come his way. That one confident moment where he knew he experienced Jesus' presence gave him the courage and to sustain a bunch more trial in the future. That, that's why I, I miss you here. We talk a ton about these ideas of like Red Sea moments, right? Like so, so Jesus or God parts the Red Sea using Moses in the Exodus. And then for 500 years after that, the Israelite writers can't stop talking about what God did when he parted the Red Sea. And so as a follower of Christ, you have those moments where you have experienced the presence of Jesus in a powerful way and has brought you comfort. And as Christians, what we need to do is write those moments down. Like, it called, like Red Sea moments. Keep a journal, a list of all the different times that God has showed himself to be with you because when you're in the middle of that storm, those previous experiences of God's presence is what gives you the confidence to know that you can take courage with you. So in the middle of that, don't doubt the closeness of Jesus. Find comfort. Take courage in the presence of Jesus. So taking courage from his presence means that if Jesus is with you, then it's going to be okay. okay? If Jesus is with you, it's going to be okay. And so, But that's not the only promise he gives us here. Look what happens next and how Paul can find more reasons for courage. And continuing on in verse 12. Uh, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to us as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and, and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring you this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. 
Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And so this, this, is, a, this is Luke's writing, like Luke as an author at his literary finest. This sounds like a, like a spy movie, like all the intrigue of like murder plots and all this stuff happening and, and uh, the, then sneaking out in the middle of the night. All this is taking place. But, but what we're seeing through this is, is a couple of things. First of all, the, the hatred that these group of assassins had for Paul. That they were so devoted to killing or de- destroying his message that they were going to bind themselves by an oath to not eat or drink until they had killed him. And unfortunately, in this situation, they're betting against Jesus. That's a really bad bet. They're going to end up very hungry before this is all over. Uh, the next thing we see is the interesting little peek into Paul's private life. Like, we didn't know he had a sister. Apparently, he had a sister who had a son, and Paul's nephew was there just the right time to hear this scenario. And then I love the way that the Tribune responds. It's like this huge amount of overkill. So there's four assassins who are trying to take Paul's life and he has at his disposal he has around 900 soldiers in his barracks and he takes over half of them to protect Paul on this journey to this other Roman city of Caesarea to keep him safe on the journey and so we see a lot of stuff unfolded but what I think what's really it's showing us is that we can have courage we can take courage because Jesus is sovereign over the little things and the big things And whether he uses small coincidences or gigantic displays of power, Jesus is sovereign. He is in control of all things. Sometimes when we talk about sovereignty, we get in this debate about Calvinism or Arminianism. And and what we mean by sovereignty is we have a big God who loves us and is in charge of all things. We can find comfort and security knowing that he is sovereign over all things. We rest in the greatness of who God is. And like I said, we see that sovereignty displayed in small coincidences and gigantic displays of power. So on the one hand, there's the coincidence that that this guy who just so happened to overhear this murder plot just so happened to be Paul's nephew. He just so happened to have access to the barracks who just so happened to be able to go speak to the tribune to get this information out there. Okay, like the, the people of God will always be astonished at the amount of coincidences they see in their lives that God uses to bring about his perfect plan. But then also I love on the other side of this, the extreme and gigantic display of power that God uses because, I mean, think about it, 40 assassins. We, we know from history that the Jewish people who would, would have been in this group, their only weapons would have been like an eight-inch knife, like so a, a small little dagger, 40 of them. And then the Roman uh, Tribune gathers 470 of the most highly trained elite fighting soldiers in the history of the world up until that point, and he's going to protect Paul with half of his army at their disposal. Right? So the, the, the mismatch there of the power is so extreme that we're seeing that God is using that example of his power to bring Paul safely to where he's at. He uses the small coincidences and the gigantic displays of power, and that's, that's how he's always done it. So like in the Old Testament, with, with the Exodus, when, when God's people were in slavery in Egypt, how did God free them? By 10 huge, gigantic, miraculous incidents where he one by one defeated the 10 deities of the Egyptian empire. And he shows one at a time that he is stronger than all of those other deities. This this massive display of God's power. And then you go on a few hundred years later, and there's this, there's a story of this woman named Ruth. And, and how does Ruth find her husband uh, in this uh, beautiful little story? It, it says this little phrase, it just so happened that the field she went to work at was Boaz's field. 
this tiny little coincidence that she ends up gleaning wheat from Boaz's field. And Boaz ends up being, becoming her husband, redeeming her, uh, and then their offspring is where uh, King David ended up coming from. But again, it's those two different things. When we say God is sovereign, it's the big things and the small things. He's sovereign over all of the universe. Daniel 2.21 says that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He's in charge of all things in the universe, the, how the seasons of the world work and who's the rulers of different nations. And we also see God's sovereignty in, in personal, tiny little glimpses, like Romans 8.31 that says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's, it's this, this intimate and personal care that he demonstrates for us. And so, so what that means is, this is a beautiful quote from uh, my pastor in college. He says, this means that God's servants are immortal until their work on earth is done. No servant of Jesus will ever die premature. Think about that. You, you are immortal until Jesus says it's time for you to go home. And so one, one example of this is the college that Kelly and I went to. The chapel is named Edmund Chapel, and it's because the president of the college was giving a sermon in 1967, and while he was preaching on the glory of Jesus, he dropped dead of a heart attack in the middle of his sermon. And so every preacher ever is like, that's how I want to go out. I want to I die preaching. Maybe they'll name this gym after me when we're gone, something like that. <laughs> but the reason this quote about God's no one of God's servants will ever die prematurely. Is that, that meant it was Dr. Edmund's time to go. He, he was serving Jesus faithfully, and God said, now nah, I'm going to take you home. The interesting thing is 46 years prior to that, in 1921, he was a young missionary with a young wife in Ecuador, and he got typhoid fever so bad that all the doctors said, this guy is for sure going to die. They planned his funeral. They bought his casket. His wife dyed her wedding dress black for the funeral because they were so confident of how he was going to die. But they didn't realize that God's servants are immortal until it's time for them to go home. And so he had another 46 years of faithful ministry because of that. And so because of this, what I'm trying to say here is that we can take courage because Jesus is sovereign. Okay, we can take courage. We can find comfort in the fact that Jesus is sovereign over the big things and the little things, which means if Jesus is for you, it's going to be okay. A little bit ago, we said we can take courage from Jesus' presence because if Jesus is with you, it's going to be okay. Here we're seeing you can take courage from Jesus' sovereignty because if he is for you, then it's going to be okay. And he actually gives us one more thing that we can look to to find courage in this passage. Let's, let's wrap up verses 25 and following. And so the, the Tribune wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, uh, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that it was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrived, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And so, so this story is continuing on. Paul makes it to this new city of Caesarea. He's going to be in this particular prison cell for the next two years. In the next few chapters we're going to study over the next month, we'll show what happens while he's in there. But there's part of the story that doesn't make sense unless you understand what's going on in Roman culture. The reason they're going to this great extent in order to keep Paul 
Paul safe is what we saw last week is Paul revealed to them that he was a Roman citizen. And being a Roman citizen in the ancient world, that was the trump card that said nothing bad could happen to you by the government of Rome without a fair trial taking place beforehand. And so because he's a Roman citizen, they view Paul as one of their own. And because he is one of them, because he belongs to Rome, they will look out for him as if he is one of their own people. Okay, and here's why that's so important. is because what Paul ultimately knows is that he has a higher citizenship than what Rome can offer. And because he belongs to Jesus, that's why he can have courage. We can take courage from our citizenship in Jesus. So look, look at Philippians 3.20. Paul says that he would write this letter from a different prison cell in Rome a few years later. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Like if we belong to heaven, God will protect us and be with us and be for us. And Philippians 3.2, he says, not that I've already made this or obtained this and made already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Okay, you can take courage because if your citizenship is in heaven, you belong to Jesus. If he has made you his own, he will not let anything happen to you that is not a part of his plan. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul wrote this letter a few years before the section we're reading about now. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Jesus loved you enough to buy you with the price of his own blood when he died on the cross for your sins. And so because of that, what that means is, is Jesus is over you. You belong to him. Jesus owns you, and because of that, you can take courage. You can take courage in your citizenship with Jesus because that means if Jesus is over you, it's going to be okay. okay so you put all this together, and what, and what we've seen is that you can take courage because Jesus is with you, Jesus is for you, and Jesus is over you. And because of that, that's why we can hear Jesus say to us, it's going to be okay, and those words mean something. But I also want, I want to end today by talking about where, this is where we started, right? What do we tell other people who are experiencing suffering? How is it that we can bring courage to them? How can we bring comfort to them? Because it's one thing for Jesus to say to us, it's going to be okay. But how do we say to another person, no, it's going to be okay? And this, this hit home uh, for me personally really difficultly this week. Um, so Hudson, our youngest, he broke his arm this summer, ruined his summer. He couldn't play baseball. And then this last week, he fell and broke his arm again, like a week after getting the, his cast off. And so we uh, just got back from the hospital, and he's crying, and I'm like, don't worry, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. And he, like, through tears, he's like, no, it's not, Dad. And, like, football season is supposed to start. He can't play football now because of this. And I'm like, yeah, it kind of feels like that. Like, I wish I had something better to say. But I feel like I'm saying it's going to be okay, and those words feel empty in that moment as being his parent trying to have what's best for him. And then through God's sovereignty, we have this passage in Acts before us that I get to study this week and I get to pray through this week. And what I see is that the reason he can take courage is because Jesus is with him, Jesus is for him, and Jesus is over him. And if that's the case, then I can look at him with confidence and say, it's going to be okay. Not because of my words, but because Jesus is with you, Jesus is for you, and Jesus is over you. And that's why it's so important for us to believe this because I can't look at him with that confidence and say that unless I first believe that that's true in my own heart. Okay, that, that's why when we talk about God working in you and God working through you, it has to begin with God working in you. We have to believe ourselves that Jesus is with us, that Jesus is for us, and Jesus is over us. And because of those things, it will be okay for us. And then we can take that same message of grace and share it with those people in our lives that are actually hurting.
So with that, I want to end this morning just by saying, here's how we put that into practice. We put that into practice by being reminded daily and weekly when we gather that Jesus is with us, Jesus is for us, and Jesus is over us. And I think there's no better place that I can see all of this laid out really clearly, better place outside of the Bible, that is, than the Heidelberg Catechism. So this was written in 1564, so it's been used for almost 500 years now by Christians who need to be reminded of how can we find comfort in the middle of a life that's falling apart. When the wheels come off, where can we go to take comfort? And here's how you can take courage from Jesus. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this reminder that we have of uh, your love for us, uh, of your sovereignty over us, and the fact that we can find our citizenship or our identity in you and the redemption you have provided for us. So I pray that as we, as we process these concepts, that uh, if, um, as we turn to our tables, that we would be able to encourage one another, that, that we would be able to, to take courage, not from the words we're hearing at the table, but from the fact that they are uh, instruments that your Holy Spirit uses to remind us that you are with us, that you are for us, and that you are over us. And so it's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, if this is your first time here, we're so glad to be worshiping with you. The reason we sit at tables is so that after we have studied a passage of the sermon together, we can turn to our tables and process these concepts and, and see how it's hitting each of us in unique and different ways. So here's some questions to get us started. Uh, again, if this is your first time, nothing you say uh, can, no one will look down on you for anything you say. This is a safe place. You can be as, as open and honest as you are comfortable sharing. So the first question is, are you most tempted to doubt that Jesus is with you, that he is for you, or that you belong to him? And which of, when do these doubts typically come, and how does this passage help? Uh, secondly, what would a person who is confident that Jesus is with, for, and over them look like? So instead of having doubts, if someone was like lived with the awareness that Jesus is with me, Jesus is for me, and Jesus is over me, what would a life lived with that kind of confidence look like? And if you were to fully believe that this week, what would tangibly change about your actions? How would your week be different if you believed those things wholeheartedly? And then lastly, what about this passage most helps you believe that it's all going to be okay? So we'll do that for about 10 minutes. And then if you, um, if you are in a DC, we're going to continue to process these questions in our DCs this week, which is another great reminder of why we all need to be in DCs together. So let's do that for 10 minutes, and then we'll end with a time of worship. Well, we're going to transition to communion here. So let's worship. Amen. So um, when I looked at this Heidelberg question, number one, that Colbert read earlier this week, I, I thought, yeah, you can hang your hat on that, you know. And then I thought all these other silly idioms like uh, that dog a hunt uh, or that a preach. But none of that. And then Colbert talked about, you know, unhelpful <laughs> phrases <laughs> none of those are adequate really but because um, this is the truth and what we can trust in is Jesus and um, uh, so we're going to read this together in a few minutes uh, before we do communion but I do want to let you know the other responses
we can do, um, we can respond in prayer. And uh, me and Jessica be back in the corner if anybody needs prayer. You can pray at your table. Uh, you can respond by giving. And there's a box in the back. And there's also a QR code on the church app that you can give. Um, and, um, and then we respond with communion. The thing, communion, we, uh, we practice open communion. That means anyone who has put their faith in Christ can participate. We got the cups and the bread in the corners. And um, as, as the band plays, we can uh, do communion. But it's only for those who have trusted in Christ. Because that's the way we remember Christ. For those who haven't trusted in Christ yet, now is a good opportunity. Uh, talk to somebody. Pray. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pray, and then uh, I'll read this uh, catechism thing. We're gonna read it together. I'll ask the questions, and you guys answer, and then we'll do communion as the music plays. So, uh, oh Lord. Uh, thank you that we can trust in you and uh, that you have it that uh, all we need is you and that you have control over everything and that you're for us and over us and with us we thank you Lord and as we remember you uh, just to help us to to really put our trust in you in Jesus name Amen so uh, I'll read the question, then we'll all answer it together. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior. He has fully paid for all my sins. 